0: Greetings Embers and welcome to Back to Ashes, my name is Phoenix. As promised, I will not lengthen this intro, but there is one thing that I must ask you if you haven't done so already. Please go over to my community tab and cast your vote for a time that would work best for you for the live reads. And with that being said, it is time to go back to ashes, for once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, stronger, wiser, and a happier person in the morning. So, sit back, relax, kick back, grab your snacks, or tuck in and get warm and prepare for this continuation entitled A Series of Horror.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Part 2. Here we go. I was a captive God for nearly a decade. You'll have to bear with me while I tell my story, so much of it is written with the hazy recollections of someone who was in captivity. Don't understand. I wasn't abused in the traditional sense. I was well-kept, I was well-fed, and I really wanted for nothing except my freedom. It all started one day when I visited my new therapist. Dr. McAllister had been recommended by a friend of mine. He said that he was very good and that he had helped him get through a lot of the issues he had with his mother and discover some things about his sexuality. He put you under and put you in touch with your real self, and that was how he overcame a lot of your issues. It all sounded great to me. I'd been having trouble sleeping and was looking for the same way to get the sleep I needed to function. My insomnia would sometimes last for days, and it was starting to affect my life. So, I made an appointment, and two weeks later I was lying on his couch listening to Dr. McAllister count down from 10 as he put me in a suggestive trance. It was very sudden, like blinking, but everything changed after that trance. When I came out just as suddenly, Dr. McAllister looked strange, and I asked if something had happened. Strange may not be descriptive enough. He looked somehow enraptured, enlightened, utterly worshipful. "'You... you spoke to me about things that you couldn't possibly have known. You... you spoke to me about some things that you couldn't possibly have known.' You talk me about my childhood, you help me get over the death of my mother, you helped me more in this long hour session than I have ever hoped anyone could. I wasn't sure what he was talking about but when he gripped my hand, his eyes shone with the light of a zealot. I need more, please let me put you back under so I can discover more. I pulled away from him and took a huge step back. What the hell was he talking about? I'd come here for help, but suddenly he wanted me to help him. I had to get out of here. I had to leave now. McAllister tried to stop me, but I was out the door before he could say much, much more than stop. I didn't sleep well that night either, and it became a real problem. Sometimes I would lay in my bed and swear I heard whispers, but I put it off as auditory hallucinations. I hadn't slept well for the past three weeks, and I knew it was starting to catch up to me. When I would force myself out of the house for work or to run errands, I could swear I felt someone watching me, but they always would be gone when I turned to look at them. It never happened in my house, always when I was out and about, and the paranoia on top of the sleep deprivation was slowly eroding my sanity. So when I heard someone open a window in my living room one night, I rolled over, just thought it was me having paranoid hallucinations. Turns out, it hadn't been a hallucination. When I heard someone open the bedroom door, I rode over and found Dr. McAllister standing there watching me. He looked like he hadn't been sleeping well either, and his eyes looked crazed as we stood there looking at each other. He wasn't sure if he was real or not, but when he lunged at me, I curled into a ball and cried out for him to stop. He didn't attack me, though, didn't hurt me at all though I now wished he had killed me right there. Instead, he just slipped a needle into my arm, and as I watched his thumb push down the plunger, I felt waves of warm and inviting sleep roll through me. I woke up in a finished basement. The lights turned down low, strapped to a chair as Dr. McAllister made sure my bindings were comfortable. I struggled, my limbs heavy and uncoordinated, but he held up a fresh needle and told me that if I didn't calm down, he was going to put me out again. I made myself as still as I could, not sure what to expect here. This didn't seem to be a sexual thing. I was fully dressed, and the way he was tending to me almost felt worshipful. I don't want to come to this, but I can't leave without the knowledge you possess. I know you don't believe what I'm saying, but while you were unconscious, you told me about things that may very well change my life. You spoke to me of things that opened my eyes, ideas I had never even conceived of. And the longer I went without hearing your voice again, the more I felt my newfound serenity crumbling. I'm sorry, I'm not usually like this, but I had to possess you, to have your knowledge and to understand your words. I can promise you that, while you remain with me, you will want for nothing. You are, to me as a captured god that I wished to understand. We talked a lot that night, though I mostly yelled at him to let me go, but in the end, he just injected me with something to knock me back out, and I drifted off into a peaceful unconscious. And that was how I became Dr. McAllister's captive god. I will say that, while I was with him, I never wanted for restful sleep. That was due in part in the fact that I spent most of my time in my near catatonic state. Dr. McAllister kept me restrained to a large underground area that I always thought of as the basement. I was seated in a large comfortable chair, my hands secured to the arms with soft straps. There wasn't a remote in hand. I was allowed to watch anything I wanted on television, as long as the doctor was away. If I was hungry, all I had to do was push a button, and a short, blonde woman, who I would later discover was the doctor's wife, would bring me anything I wanted. In the beginning, it wasn't so bad, but I was kept in a sluggish state from the drugs he used on me to induce the state he wanted. But it wasn't bad. I watched TV, I ate, and I existed. Given that I had worked 40-plus-hour work weeks and lived off crappy food for most of my adult life, it felt almost like pampering. I was free to do what I liked, except leave or talk to people who were likely wondering what happened to me. My mom, my dad, my friend. Did any of them wonder what had happened to me? It may seem odd to you that I never tried to escape, but my head was always in a cloud of some sort. The drugs left me just lucid enough to watch TV or audiobooks, but I never felt able to really settle my thoughts on anything in particular. I knew I should want to escape, but it was always a hard concept to catch hold of. Those days were the good old days, back when Dr. McAllister was still operating his practice. That was when McAllister was still pretending to have a normal life. He would come down in the evenings and talk to me, just telling me his problems and asking me to sleep. He would ask me about stocks or bonds, the housing market, business ideas, Patents and inventions, and I would try my best to direct him in the way he wanted. I wasn't sure what he wanted. My head was too foggy most of the time to make any sense of it. But I would try my best to help him out without the need to be placed into an unconscious state. We'd talk for hours, everything from the state of his marriage, the depraved childhood he had lived through, the future of psychology, and even the condition of his soul. I didn't always want to hear what he had to say, but I understood that it didn't really matter what I wanted. It didn't seem to matter anyway. He would talk for hours, but the end result was always a needle in my arm or my neck and several hours of blissful unconsciousness. I remember little from these periods of blackout, unfortunately, but sometimes I would go to a dark place and just hang suspended in the murk. Things would whisper to me there, tell me things I couldn't understand, and I was powerless to stop them. This happened very rarely, but it was still too often for my tastes. I don't know what I said to Dr. McAllister in those times, but there was always a drastic change when I came back to myself. It wasn't always for the better, either. Once I came back to myself and felt something wet in my lap, I glanced down, which was difficult because my head was strapped to the headrest, and found that someone had thrown a head onto my lap. I flinched away from it as my soggy brain finally clicked it altogether, but it was a little more than a shudder in my current state. The head had wispy gray hair, a pair of broken glasses hanging across the face from one ear to the other, and a nose full of broken veins from a lifetime of drinking. I didn't recognize it, but as it soaked, the pants of my pajamas. I didn't feel like it was familiar somehow. Dr. McAllister was sitting across from me, looking expectantly at the gift he had literally dropped in my lap, and I looked at him with confusion as I asked why he had done this. You told me to, he said, a little shocked. You said if I meant to truly get over the cruelty and abuse that my father had given me, that I had to destroy the icon of my father within myself. So I did. I told him that I wanted to meet so we could discuss our past and reconcile. I waited for him to turn around and I bashed his head in with a hammer, choking him to death as he lay twitching on the floor. Then I took the body and disposed of it, cutting the head off, so I could show you that I had followed instructions. You were so wise, so correct, and I am your loyal disciple. I started screaming, mindless, gibbering noise, but he just bowed to me. And when the head hit the ground next to him, he didn't even flinch. That was my first inclination that the things I was saying in my sleep might be used in ways I had never considered. After that, he started bringing people down to see me. At first, it was his wife, the blonde woman, who had been feeding me. She looked skeptical as she approached, content to her husband's secrets, but unsure of joining him in this new experiment. I knew from our talks that he was afraid she would leave him, but enjoyed the financial stability of their marriage. He stuck me with the needle as she sat a few feet away, and when I came to, she was bowing and crying, and she thanked me for helping her see the truth. My husband was right. You are truly a god. I was wrong to ever doubt him, or you, After that, it was friends and colleagues, they all seemed confused when he introduced them to me, calling me his god of knowledge and some of them laughed, thinking it was a joke. They would sit and talk to me, listening to my answers and looking at McAllister as if to say, is this some kind of elaborate prank? In the end though, when I came back from the little naps he should subject me to, it was always the same. Their smirk of disbelief or scowl of confusion was replaced with rapturous awe and they would pledge their undying fealty to me. No matter how many of them I begged to release me, the outcome was always the same. Over time, a religion of sorts began to form. Over time, McAllister drew in his cult. It was only a few at first, five or ten, but it began to grow in a sizable flock. The followers began to take care of me, washing and feeding, seeing to my every whim except the most important. I would ask them to release me, beg them to let me go, but it was always interpreted as a test of some sort. Their god was testing them to see if they were loyal to the here or to the hereafter, and they would thank me for helping them fortify their belief in me, as they slid their hands back into my restraints and pushed my head back into the buckles. I yelled at them, called them idiots and tried to push them, but the constant use of sedatives and the lack of exercise had me weep. I wasn't wasting away, but I wasn't getting the exercise I needed to be certain. I could do little to free myself, my bonds always replaced, and after a while, I just gave in. The funny thing was that whatever I was telling them, while I was under, was working. McAllister showed me the money he had made, won, earned from stock and selling property, and the cult thrived. What's more, They all claimed to have cast off whatever addiction or mental health problems or childhood trauma had plagued them and were addicted now to nothing but serving me. Like McAllister had said, those who tried to leave or to return to their lives reported feeling hopelessness and manic unless they could return to my presence and hear my words, whatever they were. That was when things began to get bad. McAllister was truly addicted to my influence, and it led him to overstep. McAllister had been gathering his followers at his home, and while it was large, it was becoming too small to hold all of them. I can't really speculate on how many people were there, but the basement was standing room only. I sat beneath a small bar that he was standing on and the sea of bodies was dizzying. Though he was speaking, they all looked at me as if I were speaking through him, so many eyes looking at me, my body still held in the chair, and I sat in it for God knew how long. It was something I never got used to. It never made me feel like a deity. It never made me feel powerful to have them worship me. I always felt like a pet. It's freedom just one open door away. McAllister said they would be moving to a new place soon. A place that would house them all comfortably. They could all stay there indefinitely, leaving their jobs and lives behind so they could care for their captive god. He didn't say where it was. But he said they would all go this afternoon and to prepare for a long journey. They were all so happy, their faces enraptured as he told them of their new home. But I began to feel that this would never end. When he began to bring people to see me, I had hoped that someone would fail to see me as he did and get me out of there. They would take me away from him. They would call the police, and I would be saved from the captivity. That never happened. Whatever power I had held them in sway, and after a while, I doubted that I would ever get out of there. I didn't know how long I had been McAllister's captive god, but I did know that no matter how uncomfortable the life, this had an end. I decided then that if they weren't going to get me out, I would have to do it myself. Strangely, my chance came that very day. They had all left me so they could prepare, and as I sat in the shadowy basement, I realized that my wrist strap was undone. This had never happened before, and for a moment I wasn't sure what to do. It took all the energy, I had to focus enough to get that hand to undo the other strap. When I bend down to undo my legs, the effort seemed to take years. My mind was like unraveled yarn, and it was hard to focus on any particular task. When the bands came off my legs, I got shakily to my feet before bending to rub some life into them. They were prickly from lack of use, and I took shaky steps as I made for the stairs. I got to the top before I was discovered. I peeked through the door and into the barren kitchen beyond. The cupboards were empty, the countertops clean, and I could tell that this room was already been cleaned out for the move. I had just decided to take a step out and make for the back door when someone walked into the kitchen and saw me. They called for McAllister, waiting for me as they insisted I return to my chair. I pushed at them, telling them to get out of my way, but as I lunged for the back door, I heard others coming in to stop me. I made it to the backyard, squinting as the sun hit my eyes, but found it fenced with tall wooden boards. I was grabbed then by my hands, and when someone slipped me a needle into my neck, I looked back to see McAllister instructing them to get me to the car. I came to some time later and I was laying in an elaborate bed, my hand cuffed to the frame. That began the worst part of my confinement, though it was thankfully the end of it. After that, the drugging became worse. McAllister and his inner circle kept me in a near constant catatonic state. The drugs he used were no longer just injected, and they began to experiment with other substances. The documents they were found later said they received different outcomes with different kinds of drugs being used, and they often sat around and drank or laughed as I came in and out of reality. I was aware of nothing in those times, a ship drifting out on sea at the time. I could have been with them for six days, six months, I don't know. I could have spent decades under their control for all I know. But, to me, time was only islands glimpsed from afar. I didn't see many people in that time, just the five or so, who were McAllister's inner circle. But these men always spoke, as if they were doing very well. Often... There was cigar smoke around my bed, the smell of expensive liquor, and always the low murmur of talk as they waited for me to tell them what else they might do to gain more power. I had become their oracle, their captive god, as opposed to a revered deity, and they threatened to use me up. These are the times I remember the least about, except for the end. I spent a lot of my days in a black stupor, and the more they experimented, the more often I was back in the black place. When I came back from these trances, I noticed a change in my captor. Gone were the shining eyes of the enraptured. Disappeared were the weeping orbs of the enlightened. They were replaced by the flinty eyes of the zealot, and I was afraid that he might break his promise. He looked angry, but also resolved. Whatever I had told him weighed heavily on him, but I wouldn't understand the burden for a while yet. Not till the day it all came to an end. I came to one afternoon to find an intrusive light leaking into my dark chamber. They had always kept me in this persistently dark room. But now the door was open, and something was laying in it, on the floor. There were others, none of them moving, and I was confused by their sudden stillness. Was it something new? Were they sleeping, or were they... Ugh. I tried to put a thought out of my mind. They couldn't be dead. I reminded myself as I shook my chains. If they were all dead, then who would free me so I couldn't die here too? I did as you said, came a monotone voice, and I jumped as I realized one of the slumped forms had only been praying. It was McAllister, and he looked wild. His salt-and-pepper hair was sticking up at odd angles, and his face was splattered with blood. His shirt was soaked in something and it hung on him like a wet sack. He appeared to be praying, but as something clicked in his shaking hands, I saw that he had a gun. I was afraid that he would shoot me too for half a second, but as he put it under his chin, I became even more afraid that he would use it on himself. I have risen as high as I can you will dictate that I must shed my vehicle to rise any higher. I shall see you on the other side. His blood made a crimson line across my face as the gun went off and suddenly my fear was realized. I was alone. Luckily for me, someone heard the gunshot I would lay in that bed for two days before the FBI came to investigate the compound. It turned out that they had been keeping an eye on McAllister for quite some time, even since he had started gathering followers at his home. After two years in his new compound, they had been trying to prepare a case against him before he woke up one morning and decided to put an end to his little flock. With the help of his wife, they had poisoned the morning meal and McAllister had drawn his inner circle to a meeting before breakfast where he shot them as they sat and listened to my latest ramblings. They had found journals that claimed these were things I had told him to do, but after interviewing me, I think I decided he was out of his mind. At least that's what Agent Maxit led me to believe. We're going to have to hold you as a person of interest, but it honestly sounds like you were an unwilling participant. I'm going to go and get some things in order, have a seat in here, and we'll make some accommodations for you. After he left, I noticed the recorder sitting on the table. It wasn't running, which I had expected and when I went to reach for it, I saw that the tape inside had a date on it that I remembered. It was the date of my first session with Dr. McAllister. I couldn't imagine a reason behind the FBI having a tape with that date on it unless McAllister had recorded it for some reason. I put the recorder back down, trying to stop my curiosity before it could take root. I had never heard what I sounded like in that state, and that seemed to enrapture the old doctor so much. What had I said to him to make him throw his whole life away in the pursuit of it? I couldn't help myself. I hit play on the recording and listened as McAllister told me to be calm and began to count down from ten. It wasn't the jagged, often flighty voice I remembered from any time after the session. This was McAllister at his most sane, and as he came to one, I heard him gasp and ask what I was doing. For the record, I heard a slightly deeper version of my own voice, and it filled me with dread. Agent Maxett as listened, to the tapes, and he's becoming as unusable as the good doctor. If you don't escape now, I fear that he'll have you just like McAllister did. You'll have to be quick, and you'll have to be smart, but if you mean to be free, you need to find a way to get out of here. Good luck. The ghost grass hermit. I'm an avid hiker, always have been, but I may have to rethink the way I hike after this incident. I've done a lot of hiking in my time, hiking the Appalachian Trail, backpacking through Europe, I've hiked trails on the Mexican borders, and watched the lights of coyotes as they came to drop their cargo, and in that time, I've never really felt like I was in danger. I had some close calls, don't get me wrong, but at no time did I ever wonder if I was going to live through these times or not. My last hike was the exception to that. I was hiking in the Midwest when I came across the most beautiful place I had ever seen. I can't say exactly where I was, I didn't really have a destination in mind, but I was somewhere near the Kansas and Oklahoma border. What I was doing could easily have been classified as vagrancy, but I had the appropriate credentials so that any big-bellied Midwestern cop who stopped me knew I was out here shooting photos for Nature World, a magazine that had requested some travel shots. It was pretty cool to get paid for what was essentially professional homelessness, and when I stumbled upon the little dell and saw the grass field, I knew I had found my photo op. The grass sat at the bottom of the little dip, and I thought at first that I had found a bog or marsh. When the ground turned out to be solid, I made my careful way through it as I basked in the smell of wild hay and timothy. It was tall, the tips coming up over my head, And I let my hands slide deliciously over the stalks as I walked through them. I was careful to keep my eyes peeled for snakes or any of the various biting or stinging insects that made a place like this their home. But I heard little beyond rustles as the residents took their leave of me. It was peaceful in the grass, and I lay down amidst it as I breathed in the heavy aroma. I blinked a little longer than I meant to, I guess, because when I opened my eyes again, it was nearly pitch black. I sat up, not sure what had happened. I had never just fallen asleep like this before, and I was glad when I reached for my bag and found it where I had left it. The flashlight showed me still within the womb of grass, and I tried to orient myself. I found that I had no clue which way I had come in. The grass went from inviting by day to an aromatic trap by night, and the wind played games with my senses as it rustled the thick sheaves. I made my careful way through the thicket, the moon smiling at me from overhead in its grinning halfness. The stars were cold comfort as they winked down, and the longer I walked, the more certain I was going in circles. The grass field hadn't been that large, an acre or two at most, and as I walked in an unyielding straight line, the field that I should have come to the other side by now, instead I found a grass hut sitting in a small clearing. Calling it a hut may not do it justice, it was a woven grass dome about ten feet by ten feet. The bands of grass expertly pushed through to create a curved dwelling that was likely to be dry. I could see smoke coming from the center and assumed that there must be a little fire hole carved into it. The inside glowed slightly, like a furnace that's getting ready to go out, and the whole thing sat amidst grass that had been trampled flat. Whether by the feet of its inhabitants or not, I don't know, but something about it looked a little spooky. It reminded me of the cannibal huts and the old Conan comments, and I hope the comparison wasn't apt. Get yourself lost, son. I jumped a foot and nearly dropped my flashlight, turning to see a hunched figure about five feet to my left. It was impossible to tell if it was a man or a woman, and its voice sounded ancient but not threatening. It was hardly four feet tall in its hunched, upright state, and it looked to be wearing a very old blanket in the fashion of a Mexican peasant in Western novel. The sleeves hung over his old arms like a wizard's robe, and the feet that poked from beneath Looked to be covered in woven grass sandals. He grinned up at me with his unoccupied mouth, his gums wet and pulled into a smile. And I had to stop myself from shuddering as the silence stretched on into rudeness. I'm sorry, you startled me, sir. Yeah, I must have stumbled into the grass here and lost my way. Any idea how I can get out? Just go that way and keep heading toward the sun at dawn, he said, hooking a thun behind him. But I guess that will be hard till morning. Why don't you stay with me tonight? There's plenty of room in my little abode. I looked at the grass shack and then back at the little man. He had startled me, but I decided there probably wasn't any harm in him. I agreed, and when he pressed on the side of the grass hut, I realized there was a door set expertly inside the side of the hut. I had to marvel at the little creature's ingenuity as he showed me in. The inside of the hut was no less impressive. The whole thing was set into the ground about five feet, and the roof extended down to cover the dirt walls. The smoke hole was the only opening to the sky and the fire within burned cheerily. There was a pot sitting in the fire and the contents made my mouth water a little. It smelt like meat and grains and I imagined it was likely rabbit or squirrel, given the man's location. As I sat by the fire, I couldn't help but wonder how long it had taken him to craft something like this. The effort at work, here would have taken weeks, if not months, and the end result was something truly spectacular. I made a mental note to get some pictures during the daytime, knowing the magazine would love to see it. So, what brings you this far into the grass field? He asked, taking the lid off the pot and stirring it with a spoon. Um, I was just hiking, "'I said. The warm interior made me feel sleepy all over again. "'I, um, I take pictures for magazines and write travel articles, "'and I sort of stumbled across your field on my way between places. "'The man ladled some of the pot's contents into a bowl, "'and as he handed it to me, I was amazed to see that it was also made of woven grass.' He lifted a gourd jug to his lips and sipped before picking up his own bowl, and when he offered it to me, I found it was full of spring water. The bowl was full of stew, and the meat went well with the roots and things he had mixed with it. It was a little bland but filling. He seemed to chew over what I had said as much as the meal. Taking pictures, eh? He finally said the words a little muffled as he chewed at the gristle. Aren't you some kind of reporter? Um, no, not really. More like a journalist, I guess. I write articles for Natural World, a magazine of outdoorsmen and hikers and the like. The fella, I suppose by then I had started thinking of him as a little old man in my head nodded as he sipped at the broth of his soup. He was quiet for a little bit, the fire crackling between us, the only sound in the hut, before he asked the next question. What sort of stories do you write for your magazine? I'd been crunching at some of the vegetables that hadn't been cooked all the way and swallowed them a little too hastily as he sent his next pondering at me. I coughed, reaching for the gourd as the water slopped down my face and managed to worry them down. The old man's ponderous way of talking and long bouts of silence were a little strange, but I found him to be an agreeable dinner host. Usually uh, local pieces, lore or tourist spots that the readers might be interested in, Um, beauty spots they might want to take in. Interesting points of order in the area. Local legends, you know, that sort of thing. Anything really to get people to buy the magazine. What about urban legends? He asked, his smile returning as he lowered his bowl. The glint of the fire lit off his gums, made the effect all the more grisly. I coughed again, but it had nothing to do with the remains of wild carrots and roots. Sometimes, uh, if they're especially interesting, readers always like a bit of uh, local color, I admit it, like it might be a diary secret. Well, it just so happens that the grass field you're sitting in is a little piece of local history I could tell you about it if you'd like. My excitement was at odds with my unease by this point. This was one of those situations that prickles the ancient part of your brain. The one that stopped your forebears from getting eaten by predators. That being said, the story was already starting to come together in my mind. Sitting in an honest-to-God hut and hearing a story by firelight by a native was the sort of thing urban legends were made of. To be living one was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and not one that I was going to pass up. My editor was going to absolutely have a fit when I sent him this, and I could hardly smell the bonus check. I, I sure I, I'd love to. You don't mind if I use it for a story, do you? I'd be delighted the old man said, and when he leaned forward his wrinkled old face looked like a jack-o'-lantern in the dancing firelight. The hut took on a shadowy cast as his head blocked most of the light, and the effect was impressive. This field was once called Fairy's Rest. It was said that on summer nights you could see the fireflies dancing through the stalks, and the travelers who witnessed it thought they must be fairies holding a revel. An old hermit lived out in this very field, in this very hut, in fact, and he acted as a sort of medicine man. He brewed cures for most things, helped people who needed tonics and tinctures, and was well-loved in the community. Some people said he was a warlock, a trickster who was in league with Satan, but the locals knew him to be a fine-enough sort and generally left him to his own pursuits. I found myself leaning in a little as he spoke, the smoke stinging my eye some as it wafted up from the crackling depths of the fire. The little town of Maverick got a new preacher man one spring, and that was when the trouble started. The new preacher was one of those fire and brimstone sorts, a a suffer-not-a-witch-to-live, disciples who had set his sights on the old hermit for some reason. He chastised the people of Maverick, asking how they could claim to be godly while allowing an agent of Satan to live in their midst. He told them that God would surely punish them for their inaction if they continued to let him live so close to their town. But the people were not so quickly to act. They didn't mind having the old man so close to town. Many of them benefited from it but the preacher was persuasive. He took some time and he finally convinced them that the man's very existence would spoil their relationship with God, and they made a plan to go and oust him. As I listened, I found myself watching the shadows on the wall of the hut. In the dancing light of the fire, I could almost see the mob, With their torches and pitchforks as they made their way to the grassland to smoke the poor old fella out. At their head was a man in a tall hat, his torch held aloft as he led them to do their work. I wondered if maybe water was all that was in that gourd, but the old man's story had me hooked. Well, they came to the grassy patch but no matter how much they searched or how deep they went, they couldn't find the hermit's house. It should have been impossible, but the longer they looked, the more furious the preacher became. He told them that this was proof of the man's misdeeds and that Satan himself should surely be hiding the old warlock. Finally, he took a torch and set the tall grass ablaze sending smoke into the sky as it burned. They burned patch flat, down to the soil, and when it was done, they rode back to town triumphant. As he told the story, the smell of the fire was replaced with the acrid smell of wildfire. I could just imagine someone trapped in that hellish blaze, their house burning around them as they sat inside, knowing there was no escape. Had the hermit tried to run through the burning grass? Had the smoke gotten him before the flames did? I coughed, reaching for the gourd again, and the old man seemed to revel in my discomfort. Well, imagine their surprise when the spot was reported to have returned a week later. They never found the old man, but it was said that smoke could be seen coming from the grass field. It was all so said that people started going missing. Anyone who was involved in the burning either went missing themselves or saw a member of their family disappear. Most times it was children, but sometimes a spouse or a cousin would suffice. Eventually, the people of Maverick told the preacher he wasn't welcome anymore and forced him out of town in the hopes that the old man's spirit would be appeased. He sat back from the fire then, watching me as I leaned in closer, the fire hot against my face as I fell deeper into his tail. After that, they called the place Ghost Grass and those who venture in sometimes never come out again. Travelers, hikers, local kids who don't heed their parents' warnings. They all fall victim to the ghost grass and the vengeful old soul who resides there. He doesn't take them all, though. He still leaves a few, the one he lets live so they might spread the story. Those who come here without invitation, however, learn better than to meddle with things outside their ken. The people of Maverick still remember, and they always will. I leaned back as he finished, letting the implication set in. Was he claiming to be the vengeful spirit of the grassy field, or was he just messing with me? Suddenly, I had never felt less tired of my life but then he suggested that we turn in for the night. I agreed with that argument. Where would I go, after all? The people who had come to find the old hermit had never discovered this place. What were the odds of me stumbling out again with only the moon to guide me? I lay in the shadows of the hut, the fire burning low as the old man lay on the opposite side. He never snuffled or tossed, just lay there like a stone as I shivered beneath my blanket. I didn't want to sleep, didn't want to drop off with this thing so close to me, but my long day of hiking catching up with me. I fought against the sleep, trying my hardest not to fall into its web, but eventually the matter was settled for me. "'and I came awake in the morning like a diver breaking the surface. "'The hut was dark, but I could see the sun through the small hole. "'The old man was nowhere to be found, "'and I saw little else to do but pack up my bedding and leave. "'I got some pictures, kind of wishing the old man was here "'so I could include him, and left the hut behind me. "'I found my way out of the grass, just as he had suggested.' and after a single look back, I set off west, just as I had for the last week. The woods were behind me, and the flatland I found myself in was dotted with farms and fences, crops and cattle, and a dark snake that stretched its way across the ground as far as the eye could see. The road appeared once a broken hill, and I followed it for most of the day, I saw a sign around noon that told me Maverick was two miles up the road, and when the outskirts came into view, I was glad to be back in civilization. I stopped at a local diner to write this down and send it to my editor, wanting to get it all while it was still fresh. I don't know why I was worried about missing a detail, because I don't think any of the night before would ever leave my mind. The people of Maverick are very familiar with the grasslands and the legends that surrounded them. The woman at the Desert Flower Dinner, where I sit now, shuddered when I told her about the night I had had. She said I was lucky to be alive, luckier than Billy Register and his friends, at least. When I heard who they were, she pointed to a bulletin board by the door. There hung three missing persons posters bearing the faces of three high school kids that had recently gone missing. Thinking about what meat might have been in that pot I ate from makes my stomach flip. But I suppose it's too late for regrets now. So, if you find yourself traveling the footpaths of Oklahoma and you come across a field of tall, lush grass, be very careful. They might hang your missing poster on the board next, should you become the next victim of the ghost grass hermit. And that, dear listeners, is where I'm going to close these A Series of Horror Stories Part 2. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed these selections. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.